Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here. Electronically Yours, as always, today's very exciting and extremely witty and funny and engaging, I even though I say so myself, it's not me, um, guest is Stuart McConey, who's well known to everybody, in the UK at least, uh, as DJ, TV presenter, writer, journalist, together, together with Mark Radcliffe, who's Electronically Yours alumnus. Um, he does fantastic shows on Radio 6. Uh, he writes for Q, Word, L, Times, Guardian, Evening Standard, Express, Select, Mojo, you name it. He used to be an assistant editor of the NME back in the day as well. He's a sweet guy, very, very knowledgeable, passionate about music. And uh, as we discuss in the, in the um, discussion you're about to hear, very lucky to be doing the job that he's doing, uh, doing something you're passionate about all your life, really. And um, this is really a very entertaining episode, I have to say. So here he is, Stuart McConey. So what, what are you doing at the moment, apart from a million things that you always do? The radio, the new book just out, um, doing events to do with that. Um, which will it's called The Full English. It's I can talk to you about it if you want, Jim. And thing, the, yeah, it's, a re, it's a retracing of the um, it's a retracing of JB Priestley's 1934 travelogue called English Journey. Right, I've visited the same places, exactly the same places, in exactly the same order, followed his narrative, and exactly as it was. Basically, I mean, it's been suggested to me before down the years when people realise that I've gotten into like doing sort of pop culture, social history, travelogue things. And and I've always thought, well, why why bother redoing it? But then after Brexit, after COVID, mm. felt like it was a good time to test the waters, you know what I mean, of modern, well, not Britain, because it's just England, modern England. And it was fascinating. It took me about a year and a half of travelling around everywhere. And then and it just came out about three weeks ago. Um, and it's doing well. And then so there'll be a, I'm still doing little events to do with it. I'm off to Chester with the great Frank Cottrell Boyce on Thursday night doing something. So I'm still doing a lot, keeping it ticking over. So response has been really good. I'm very chuffed, yeah. Are you in, are, do you enjoy the promotional events? Because I did quite a few for my autobiography and, and, um, I, I liked it when people turned up, but, okay, you know, some of them were a bit, yeah. Oddly attended, shall we say? And some of them were great, like you know, the, the music experience in Liverpool, like it was full. Of yes, fucking hell, it's amazing. Yeah, it's a funny one. It's I, I used to do a thing for my last book, which was not my last one, the one before, which was a retracing of the Jarrow March, yes. of, of nineteen thirty-six. Um, I did a whole theatre show. To go with it, I'd got PowerPoints. I did a real proper show, an hour and a half, you know, and it was a show, right. sold proper tickets at proper prices. And I really loved doing that, but I've not done that for this simply because I've just not had the time. But what mm. I felt, what I feel is that if you say to people, here's a proper thing, you've got to pay a proper amount for it, they'll turn up. But weirdly enough, like like Waterstones in Wigan, where I'm from, will like say, oh, well, can you just come for an hour and sign some books and we'll, it will 
people can people don't have to pay or whatever. And that's when people don't. It's weird. It's when people don't put any kind of effort into the publicity or organisation of it that people don't I turn up. But it's, agree. I agree yeah. with that. I always say to people because I one of the skills that I have acquired in the last twenty years uh, is like cultural production. Mm. And like, I'd rather I hadn't, but somebody's got to do it, and I can pay yeah. somebody. So, and it's when you don't charge for things. Exactly. Don't turn up. Charge them a couple of quid. Yeah. You know. yeah that's it. Give them an vested interest in turning up. I know. I said, I said, yeah, I always say that. But anyway, no, it's good. I can't complain. So we'll see what Sheffield and Scar It's not Sheffield. That's because I'm talking to you. Chester and Scarborough are like. Ah, uh, Scarborough this, now. This week. I like Scarborough. I, I don't know it. Is it posh Yorkshire? It used to be. Hmm. Um, now it's a bit run down. Is it? I still love it, though. I mean, they've got this uh, fantastic old Victorian hotel on the hill overlooking the bay, and it's like no, the, the owners can't afford to do it up, so it's like it's the worst hotel in town. You know, it's so sad. It's a bit like the um, – what's the one in Liverpool? So, yes, the Adelphi. Yeah, it's like the, it reminds me of the Adelphi. Do you know what? I think I nearly stayed at that hotel. I think I was nearly staying at that hotel, and then I suddenly decided I wanted to go for a walk on, like, the cliffs, Flamborough Headway, and fire it. Yeah. So I booked myself into a hotel going out that way. But I think I stayed at that hotel you're talking about. Yeah, you've got to be careful. But uh, but there are some beautiful – I mean, it's a great place, and they still have donkeys. And Great. <laughs> I like that. English seaside. Um, yeah. I'm down with all that. So tell us about growing up then. You grew up on Merseyside, was it? Well, I was born on Merseyside, so I am officially a scouser, although I think I'm what they call a placky scouser, a plastic scouser, because I was born in a place called uh, Prescott, where, where the great Frank Cottrell Boyce is from. And it's sort of the badlands between Merseyside and Lancashire, and where you start getting into what they call woollyback territory, you know, from, oh, from the Lancashire textile area. So I was technically, technically a scouser, but moved quite early on in life to Lancashire and grew up, grew up in Wigan, grew up on a council estate in Wigan, which, as did it then, as more and more I think about it, half the people in Britain. I mean, it's amazing how Thatcher came along and... Me too. You know, destroyed, really, that council... Yeah, after people in Britain grew up in a cancellation, it wasn't regarded as anything weird or unusual or remedial. It wasn't like you, it wasn't like you did it because you couldn't get another house. You just did it because everybody else did, you know. Um, and so, and my experiences of it were great. I mean, looking back now, I probably think, oh yeah, I didn't have the things that some of my mates did who had a, who had nicer posture houses. I had a great, I had a great time. I think one of the reasons why I loved going to Butlins as a kid was it sort of reminded me vaguely of. A counsellor's thing. It was just loads of kids running about semi-ferally, but not aggressively, really, or criminally. There's always this idea that counsellor estates are sink estates, aren't they? And they're not. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think a lot of that's come from the kind of London centricity of that perception, because uh, there are quite a lot of, you know, really quite rough areas that are mainly council now. Yes. In uh, you know, I mean, Tower Hamlets, for instance. That's what I reckon. Oh, hello. What's that? I'll, I'll turn it off anyway. I think that was, I think that was Siri reacting to something. Anyway, I've turned it off. <laughs> yes, I think you're right. I think it is. They did get underfunded and 
the worst, not the worst, that's not, not a fair way of putting it, but shall we say some of the most vulnerable and unsuccessful people in their lives were sort of farmed out to them. Yeah, it's not the, yeah. Um, yeah, but it wasn't, but it, you know, half the pe- over half the people in Scotland lived in council houses in the 70s. The great Grace Maxwell, do you know Grace, Edwin Collins's yeah. partner? Yeah. Who's brilliant, and she she once tweeted, and it was very much the impetus for my last book, The Nanny State Made Me, that she said, people are always going on about the 70s. People are always going on, like, particularly on the right. People are always going on about awful, awful times, strikes, awful. And as as I often think, it was it probably was quite awful if you were a major shareholder of Rio Tinto Zinc. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. But if you yeah. were 17 living in a council house in Wigan, about to go fully funded to university onto the great adventure of life and all that, with with secure working conditions at the end of it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all that old good stuff, wasn't that terrible at all? No, you know it wasn't I mean? terrible. I mean, we were told it was meant to be terrible because of, like, the Thatcher shutting down all the steelworks. Yeah. But you know what? I've said this uh, to some other people on interviews. Everybody who wanted a full-time job could get a full-time job. Yeah, they were leaving school. Everybody, pretty much. Yeah, it was a shameful thing if you if you had to take a part time job or if you were on the dole. There were very yeah. few people who wanted to do that. It just wasn't in the zeitgeist at all. So, I, I I look back on it now and I go, well, you know, I started off uh, as a training manager at the co-op, and then yeah. I went on to work as a computer operator and stuff. But they were just lo- they, it was full employment essentially. Yeah. Think about that for a second. Yeah. If we assessed, <laughs> if we assessed, if we assessed uh, unemployment using the same criteria that we did then, now, I dread to think what the percentage of unemployment mm. would be now. Yeah. By the time I graduated, because I went to college, but by the time I graduated, things were getting a bit worse because yeah. Thatcherism was beginning to get its stride. Uh, but but, it, but you're absolutely right, and like obviously we talked to the generation before us. We talked to my dad, and my dad found it unthinkable because he said you were left school at 14, and you and you walked down the road to the local factory, and they were just the right start this afternoon, you know. Yeah. And when you and if you got sick of it or you hated your boss, you knew you could just walk into another job. I mean, people accuse me sometimes of being slightly romantic about things, and I and I understand this that at some point we probably have to get over the fact that we aren't going to make things anymore, we aren't going to dig coal anymore, and we aren't going to we steal anymore and i get that it's a shame but i get we've got to get over it but i do think we can move forward with a bit more um decency than we are doing at the oh, moment I'd say, you know I, mean? I think we're on the same yeah. page there definitely mm. what was interesting um not so long ago i did a project in blackburn it's called the festival yeah. of making and they kind of marry up um factories with artists and they make things that kind of bring to light what what is still happening and it was the silent night mattress factory okay uh, i did some uh recording with them and recorded all the testing and stuff made rhythms out of it blah, 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 all this stuff i was just awestruck by the fact that these people in this giant factory were quite cheerfully working like dogs eight hours a day for presumably not a huge pay packet mm-hmm. Well, everybody used to do that back in the day, right? Yeah. Now we're all—I don't know—I think we're all a, a little bit softer now, and we we want things to be a little bit easier because it's more of a kind of uh, admin admin-rich society in the, in the UK in particular. Yeah. Um. 
But anyway, yeah, so we yeah, all... But I, no, I, but I worked... My first job after leaving college, which, bless her, my mum got me because there was nothing. She worked in, she was in cotton mills. She was in textiles, and my mum got me a job. I've written about this in one of my books, Side with Roadies. My mum got me a job as a, as a sales planner in the office at Courtauld's in Bolton and Oldham. I went around a few places... Absolutely hated it. I mean, Happy Hour by the House Martins came out while I was doing it. And I thought, and I've always I loved Paul, I loved the House but I thought someone has written a song about my life, you know, about the horrible nature of off male office politics and all that and the, going down the pub with the lads after. And, and, it, and it wasn't, and looking back, I, I just wasn't cut out to be there. The lads there were particularly awful. I don't think one or two were. But basically, it was just I wasn't cut out to be there. But as part of my training, I went, as they say, through the mill. So they, I had to work. It's a great idea, actually. I had to work for a few days in every other department of the mill, including working on the big carding machines where lads and girls were looking after these machines, watching for yarn to come off all day long. It was an experience I've never forgotten. It's the hardest work I've yeah. ever done. And I thought to myself, and the great J.B. Priestley says this as well in his books, when someone is saying, oh, why do these young people, you know, going out drinking and which they've been doing, they've been saying this since the 1930s onwards, you know, cavorting in dance halls and drinking and getting up to no good. Well, the reason is when you've worked, when you've done that job Monday to Friday and five o'clock rolls around on a Friday evening, as much as I like culture and you do too, you do not probably want to settle down with a slim volume of difficult modern poetry. <laughs> you want to go and have a few pints and let out some steam. And I just think, you know, that I, I could not believe these lads and girls were doing this every day. And I thought a week of this would kill me, would would kill me. Oh, lads. yeah, absolutely. And the, a great the, deal of respect for them. Yeah, the, the installation I ended up doing was in, uh, in, in Blackburn, was actually... Yeah. Um, about Northern Soul. Oh, as, great. As a, and he was done in this old Northern, Northern Soul um, 1930s dance hall with the sprung dance floor in it called the Empress Ballroom. He's it's, it's on the Northern Soul circuit, you know. And um, yeah. And it had not been, it, they shut the doors 30 years ago and it had not been touched since then. I said, yeah. leave it exactly as it is. Don't clean it up. Leave the cobwebs and the falling plaster work and all that stuff and um basically we, we recreated the working week in a 3d sound thing like a seance for okay 12 people at a time so it was like the sounds of manufacturing in 3d and all this stuff and then it got to friday and it was dance time so it turned into like northern soul then we had northern soul dancers coming out People were going, oh, this is great. They were queuing around the block for it. It was good. Great, but that yeah. Was my experience growing up, you know, I mean, you just spent all your money on the weekend, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'm very, um, you know, very, um, I do think of myself, you know, as that experience never leaves you being working class. I mean, and it's always like I always have this, I don't have this argument with people, but I always say to people, class is about much more than money. Yes. And if you and if and without becoming like an old school Marxist about it, class is about your relationship to the means of production. So young black footballers in Britain, however much money they make, will always be working class, I think, because of the nature of the relationship to the establishment. Whereas someone like, let's pluck an example from the air, Jacob Rees Mogg, even if he became for some reason a pauper, he's still a member of that upper powerful ruling class by virtue of his education, his connections, his family background, in a way that Raheem Sterling will never be. Raheem Sterling will always just be, however rich he gets, or, or insert who else, Jordan Sacco, however, uh, Bikaya Sacco, however, 
rich working class kids, which is different. Well, I, I think it's a very good point you make there. Okay, so uh, just for people who aren't familiar, everybody knows who the hell you are. I don't know why I'm bothering, but well, I'm not sure, but anyway. <laughs> Uh, you're a DJ, TV, TV presenter, writer, journalist, critic. Ooh, critic now. Yeah, yeah six. Um, it's tough being a critic, is it? I don't do so much of that anymore. That was my first... Well, the first thing I did in the media was I worked for the NME. So I guess we can call that being a critic. <laughs> um, I suppose you are. But I once said to Brian Eno, do you think you'd make... Sorry, name drop, I know, but I once said to Brian Eno, do you think you'd make a good critic? And he said, no, because I can't imagine anything worse than trying to persuade people not to enjoy things. Mm. And I've always taken that on board and always thought since then, if that's all you're doing, don't do it. Even if you are reviewing something that you don't particularly like, um, try to do it. If, if that's the case, if you don't particularly like it, then the, then you should be funny or you should be entertaining, yeah. or you should say something constructive, or you should find something positive to say. If all you're doing is persuading someone not to like something, then that's a, we don't need that in the culture, really. So I've always taken that uh, on board. But, yes, but yeah, it is um, – yeah, I guess I was an enemy reporter, enemy writer. It Back in the day when – I know if you're a musician, you're on the opposite side of the fence, so you probably don't think that. But when, the, when I would sometimes read the enemy – because I used to enjoy them being a bit nasty about some people, you know what I mean? Because it was funny. Yeah. Because it was funny. And then, but you can go over a line like that. My friend Catelyn Moran talks about she once did some horrible, wrote a horrible piece about Ned's atomic dustbin of all people, where she said something quite nasty about them. And her now husband, Pete Perfides, basically said to her, why did you do that? That's not funny. You're better than that. And she sort of thought, yeah, I am. I'm not going to do that sort of stuff anymore. But you go through a fair... I think some music critics... It's gone now, anyway. That whole world that we grew up with of science oh, and okay. melody maker is gone. But, I mean, to a certain extent, some people made their... You know, I think there were people who thought, I'm going to be the new Judy Burchill or whatever, or the new Tony Parsons. So I'm just going to be rude about everybody and everything. But you soon find that's kind of counterproductive really and so so i hope i was never too unpleasant but yeah i suppose i do a little bit of it from time to time no so it's much more likely to be a book i review from one of the yeah. posh papers or something you know yeah my friend uh, richard evans just brought a book out uh, about that period of electronic pop history between 78 and 84 hmm. and he decided to look at it through the lens of uh, journalists and critics of the time and what was obvious is that period was the snarkiest period. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Yeah. yeah. You think about uh, we used to get regularly slaughtered with him. Did you? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, regularly, and and um, it was the time when what the, what they call him, uh, Pet Shop Boys dude, uh, new tenant. Yeah, was was the editor of Smash Hits. Smash Hits. Yeah. And he just didn't like us at all. Which really. Is quite, quite ironic considering. Well, I, would have thought he, I would have thought he'd love you. No, no, no. He was always a bit snarky about us. And um, anyway, I never forget these things. <laughs> <laughs> but the best one is uh, is um, it's what they call is um, John Lydon. The when Bean Boyle came out with the Human League, and he he just he was doing a guest column in I don't know where it was, Enemy or something, and uh, just a two word review: trendy hippies. Is that what he said? Odd, odd thing to say. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I, I was not because I was a massive fan from the get go. I mean, Travelog and Reproduction are still two of my favourite albums oh, ever. But, but um, I, I was a big fan from the get go. So, um, I always just imagined that because you were kind of 
super cool that I thought and still do. You'd been would been a bit of a critics band, were you not? No. Oh, we were. We were. The other side of it is when the split happened. You know, with the yes, you know, we were lionized by, you know, enemy and Melody maker and all that stuff. But actually, it didn't translate into sales. No. Interesting. It was just on that cusp where if you weren't selling to the mainstream, it, it was it was the um, diminishing of the influence of those kind of people yes. at that point. And uh, so it didn't help us, but I mean, but it, it was extraordinary though the power of those papers. I remember one of the first, one of the very first interviews, big interviews I did for NME. It's my first cover story. In fact, again, a story I've written about in my book Cider with Rodies. I was teaching in Skem, Skelmsdale, Liverpool Overspill Town, right. and I was lecturing there. Lecturing, I, you know, most of the people I was teaching were the same age or older than me. I was, I was like right. twenty-three. There, but you were taught as a teacher. Right? unemployed workers who were coming back to learn. So I taught English and sociology classes at A-level. But I started to get reviews accepted for the NME at the same time. And then this extraordinary thing happened. Well, one afternoon I'm teaching a class and the secretary says to me, owns the door and says, there's a James Brown on the phone for you. And I thought, right, that's James Brown. He's the features editor of NME. And I said, can you ask him to wait? I'm just, I'm, I'll call him out when I finish the class. And she says, he's very insistent, as indeed he, James is. And she said, he's very insistent. It's about going to America on Monday to do something with the NME. And I went, and I went okay, I'll be there. I'll do it And I turned to the class and the class went, go and take that phone call. Because they knew, <laughs> they knew I was starting to do reviews. They said, go and take that phone call. I said, I should do, should not really. And I went, basically said, can you get to, uh, have you got a passport? You know, can you get to, America on Monday, I'm at Seattle on Monday, well, obviously not under your own steam, but to interview in excess at the point where wow. they were massive. I said, well, I, hmm, maybe. I said, but like, anyway, I went back to the class and I said, I told them what it was. And I said, I've got you. I'm teaching you on Monday and Tuesday. And they went, just send us some work. Just give us some work. Go. <laughs> and basically, basically they said to me, you've got to go. You cannot oh, yeah. do, you cannot miss this opportunity which was brilliant of them. So I went, why am I telling this long story? One of the things Michael Hutchins said in that very first big interview I ever did with anyone, he was really sweet to me. I think he was, a, he was just a sweet guy, but he, he was looked, he was very sweet to me when, you know, he could tell I'd not done much of this stuff before and wasn't used to it. And he said, sorry, there seems to be a light aircraft going over. Um, he said, um, he said, he said, we, you, you're the enemy. You're like the hip, quite snarky guys, aren't you? And I said, well, I, I, I hope not too bad. He said, he said, we, we said, it's okay. He said, you seem fine. And we're doing this because our record company have said, you know, an NME cover story is not to be sniffed at. He said, everywhere else in the world, radio rules, particularly America. He said, everywhere else in the world, radio decides what's cool. And he said, only in Britain. He said, it's you guys. Hmm? He says, you guys can make and break careers. And I said, are you sure? He said, well, certainly it's been impressed upon me that getting an NME cover story is a big deal. And I thought, well, I thought, yeah, maybe you're right. But then I always used to say to young bands after that, when I became a, an experienced man of 24 or whatever, I used to say, <laughs> when they used to come to me and say, can I believe someone slugged our album off? I used to say, don't read your press, weigh it. <laughs> Which I think there's a certain amount of truth in that. And there's a certain amount of truth in that. A certain amount of getting them just out there is a good thing. Yeah, but as yeah. I was saying, it's gone. It's a whole cultural thing that generations of people grew up with. That has just completely disappeared from my life now. Which is kind of sad, although if you were Nedda Tom Dustbin getting slagged off, you probably don't think it is that I don't, sad. I don't, I don't know. So you you're you're a uh, you started off as a musician though as well, didn't you? 
Were you in a band? Yeah, only, in, only, in, only in crap. No, not, I better not say crappy little bands. It, they weren't. But only in sort of bedroom bands. And we we emerged. I was in a band called the Young Mark Twains, which is a fabulous name. Mm. And we we never really put records out or anything. I mean, stuff's floating around on the internet, I think, now. But we emerged. We were very much in the vein of we emerged in sort of early 80s when I was in my early 20s. Um, very much in the... I believe now it gets called Sophisty Pop. Oh, you know, those people like Aztec Camera, Lloyd Cole and the Commotion, Scritty Politi, which I still think, and yourselves, Heaven 17, although slightly more electronic, obviously, yeah. you, which I still think, unashamedly, is a golden age of pop music. In oh, it definitely I absolutely, It's a golden age of pop music. People like yourself making music that was both pop music and clever, you know. Yeah. And I, and it, I don't think we quite realised what a golden age it was, Nelly. But you look, still some of my favourite albums are from that period by you and Lloyd Cole and Green Guard Side and all the Postcard Records mob, and people yeah. who were unashamedly in love with pop music, but with a bit of sense of humour and a bit of wit and intelligence and all that. You know. And there was enough resource from the record companies to actually, you know, make records properly, record them properly in the best studios with the best equipment. And that, and people, uh, you know, are always um, are always kind of uh, disturbed when I tell them the reality that you know everything's made on the cheap now, fundamentally, yeah. apart from the top one percent. Yeah. You know, most people. I mean, an awful lot of our albums are done at home. Some hip hop artists. I'm not knocking hip hop. I love hip hop. I mean, they they they, they use Apple loops for Christ's sake on their laptop. Yeah. You know, and they, these are number one records. Yeah. So you you know, I I think but I I've just done um I've just done a, a an interview with the guitarist who played on um Let's Stay Together, Teen Turner song because yes. I'm doing a tribute to her. And uh I just re- remember it back to those times and the record companies will give you huge resources in the best studios with the best engineers best whatever you wanted i didn't have a budget for the second m17 album there was a blank check wow. in the best studios oh, it's unbelievable it's the exact yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, i suppose that's supposed to downside of that slightly if there is a downside if you talk to like green i'm not like green guard side he, he would i mean took some second great script but it's not the second album it's the third album but provision which came out after cupid and psyche yeah. whatever 95 85 and i think he would say no he was given so much money and time that he was there for months moving moving bits by the millisecond on you know yeah he's a so he's you a, can get too perfect yeah he's a he, he's a particular um uh unusual set of circumstances i mean i've produced him um yeah uh, and and He's a lovely guy and a fantastic musical brain. He's got like multiple staves of manuscript running through his mind all the time and, and stuff. But he is absolutely pathologically unable to decide and finish stuff. Yeah. And yeah. that's why he used to, <laughs> when he used to go to his record company, they used to treat him with kid gloves. He's yeah. been doing this album now, Green, for like two and a half years. Do you think we can hear something? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot to be said for deadlines, isn't there? Oh, deadlines. There's a a lot to be said for, like, the Beatles. I mean, I know it's an odd one to pick, but, you know, the Beatles going in and doing Please Please Me and 
in the day. And I mean, you look now, I know it's a different world, but you look at that now and you think, you know, did they make rubber sole and revolver in the same year? But anyway, but you're just thinking astonishing. You know, fa- but, but I guess they're they're unusual and the culture was moving so fast at that point, yeah, wasn't it? So, it was. But yeah, no, I, that's still a golden age, I think, of people who are making music that was brilliantly poppy. Um, in the sense of great tunes, great arrangements, you could dance to it, you loved hearing it on the radio, and had a real kind of intelligence about it as well. And particularly, yeah, particularly people like yourselves and um, Lloyd Cole, people like that. Yeah, I, I loved I think it was a real golden age. I've just been working with Lloyd, actually. I've he's got on, a lot of respect for his, his work. He's, he's now doing uh, quite a lot of electronic music. He is, isn't he? Yeah. He is, isn't he? Which is a change you wouldn't have seen when you when he was like the new I don't know Bob Dylan or whatever in the early eighties. Yeah, great yeah. songwriter. Great songwriter. Yeah. So, did you come up with the name Britpop? I've read. Yes. Um, well, I always say about this that I'm sure that some journalist writing in the 1960s about the Hollies and the Brit- and the British invasion then probably said something like it because it's not a particularly brilliantly clever name. But when I was at NME, I'd been at NME through three or four years and I was getting tired. I was actually getting tired of the music we were promoting and I was tired of the music that was kind of dominating our agenda, which was grunge, which then and now I didn't have a particular enthusiasm for. It's just not my thing. I mean, I can, I can understand that Smells Like Teen Spirit is a great record, but the 150 copies of it by people not as talented, I wasn't, wasn't interested in, you know what I mean? So... 150 facsimiles, I should tell you. So I was getting really tired of that, and I was starting to really like bands like, well, the first few records by Suede, Blur, Pulp, which seemed to me, going back to what I was saying about the early 80s, seemed to me to be, if not musically similar to that, certainly aesthetically had a similarity in the way same way they had a similarity with glam and with the 60s beat boom, in that it was it was effervescent British pop. Hmm. about things that were on, you know, about it wasn't whiny. And I found so much grunge basically boiled down to, I don't want to tidy my room. You know what <laughs> I mean? And so, and I like these bands who had a bit of wit and glamour and a bit of sex appeal about them. And I thought, and I just got so bored with the writing about Superchunk and Alice in Chains at NME or, or hmm. that a guy called Andrew Harrison, who was then running a magazine called Select, which was a great little magazine, he said, if you jump ship from the enemy, I will give you your head, as it were, to write, I'll give you like pretty much a whole issue to do a manifesto about, if you want to, about why get rid of, why grunge is boring and the new British pop bands are exciting and different. And I thought, yeah, okay. so I did. And it's quite a magazine world now, in the lore of magazines, quite a famous edition of Select. It's got Brett Anderson on the cover and a Union Jack, and it says, who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Cobain? Like, music oh. hits back against grudge or whatever. And I wrote about all those bands, and I did a big political essay, and there's interviews with Swed, stuff like that. And at the time, <laughs> he's forgiven me now, but Brett hated it because bands, inevitably, after the first bit of publicity, hate being lumped in with any kind of scene, yeah. understandably, because they always want to say, were completely unique and individual. We owe nothing to anybody else. And to a degree, that's right. I did lump bands together who didn't have that much in common, but they had a bit. But anyway, in that polemical essay, whatever, when I was saying these are the bands who I think are exciting and grunge has become whiny and leaden. And at some point in there, I used Britpop. And I said, we could call this new thing maybe Britpop. And it's like what Suede have got, what Pulp have got, what 
all kinds of weird people, auteurs, denim, just people who are a little bit different. Yeah, and it just and that's where it, that's as far as I can remember the first time it was used. But the interesting thing is, I think what became known as Britpop really isn't what I meant. It's, we're talking a year a, a year and a half before Oasis. Right. So what became Britpop, which was a bit more laddish and a bit more about football and all that. That wasn't really my original intention. My original Britpop idea was much more bedsits and crimpling and Jarvis Cocker than replica football tops. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't triumphalist. It was a little bit eccentric. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? I, I um, felt a bit a bit the same way about um, when Arctic Monkeys came out. I just thought, this is such a breath of fresh air. Absolutely. I know from my, from my hometown, I tried to sign them up. By the way, before they were signed, did you? I heard, I heard their demos in New York of all places, in this tiny um, publishing house, and they said, "Oh, we're flying over to uh, to can you do you know where Sheffield is?" Trying to sign this, and I'm going, "Oh, play it for us." I've never heard of them. This I said, I immediately got on the phone because I knew somebody associated. I said. I know I'm really more famous for ele electronic pop, but I really, really want to help with this if I can because I think that's wow. magnificent. And um, no, they didn't go for it. You know what? I think they are. I think they're a real. They're what the last. I think maybe of a certain kind of British pop group, or maybe one of the best of them because they. You can absolutely see a like the Beatles or whatever. You can see a progression from those early yeah. brilliant punky, witty, funny demos. And you look at where the, the last two albums have been, which I love. I love as well. And yeah. they're kind of almost, I think, them. you know, it's like moving in the same territory. It's like Bowie, Scott Walker, almost people like that. He's really, they've really matured, but this is a horrible word, they're becoming boring. And I, and I thought, and uh, and apparently, but very, I could start, how are those, how are they going to send in cricket grinds though, that last album, which is pretty, what would you say, reflective, pretty subtle. And I, and I read an interview with Alex where he was saying, I looked down at the set list and he said, and, and, I, and he's deliberately chosen, I think they only do three songs from the new album, which I can yeah, understand. Yeah. They're probably thinking it's a more of a listening at home out thing than, you know. I think they, 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 they could, I know it sounds a bit of a stretch, but they could be like a, a kind of futuristic northern Pink Floyd to me. Now, yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, they could get in, they could go in that direction without being pretentious, but actually, they're more interested in that kind of filmic, filmic, film, yeah, building you know, that. And do you know what? When that last album came out, not this current one, the last one, which was what called Tranquility Bay Hotel and Casino, which I okay. loved, it got really sniffy, snobby reviews in some of the posh papers and magazines, which. Uh, they've all made a vault fast about it now. But basically, what a lot of the reviews boiled down to, I thought, was, who do you think you are? You're all you from <laughs> Sheffield. You should not rise above your station. You should, that kind of, you should make that indie pop that we got, we could get a handle on. You know what I mean? I think it was basically, who do you think you are making these interesting records about all kinds of things, about the nature of mass entertainment and modern culture, which is yeah. what he's interested in. No, but I, I think they're great. I think they're a fantastic group, the Arctic Monkeys, yeah. They really, really are. The only argument I'd have with them, I went to see them in Sheffield a couple of years ago, and they, um, they, it's not their fault, but, you know, the mosh pit is now two-thirds of the, and everyone yeah. has got a phone like that. Yeah. Everything. And I'm going... 
please, do you know, I'm not saying that I'm not one of them evangelists that goes put down your phones. I think yeah. we, need, we need all the publicity we can get. <laughs> they do not, you know. They the people should just be in the moment with those big rock gigs. I think anyway. It is weird. It is with me. If it's a, I know this sounds a bit. Is it patronising? Is it sexist? I don't know. If it's a, if I if I, saw, if, I saw, if I see a teenage girl at a pop gig filming a bit, I think in a kind of excitable way, I think brilliant. You want to remember this moment. Yeah. But it's when you see like a fifty-year-old bloke with an iPad, unsmiling, holding yeah. it up for the duration of a gig, and you think you're making this about you, isn't it? He's making you're making this about you. So you say, oh, I I got it all recorded and I uploaded it, and it's like it's a this is a joyless thing that you're doing, you know, and I can't. Fucking see because of your iPad, mate. I know. iPads should be banned. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you had a bit of an argument with Dave Gilmore, didn't you? Speaking of Pink Floyd, not Dave Gilmore. Uh, Roger Waters. Oh, Roger Waters. No, yes, because we may, yes, because we, and I don't know, we may differ about this because I think he, uh, we, we, what, what it was, I wrote a piece for the New Statesman, um, about. I thought a very fair piece about it, but he, but there was a piece, there's a bit in it that I think is factually inaccurate, quoted from El País, the Spanish newspaper, and immediately I realised it was factually inaccurate, which we removed it and changed it right. and apologised. Uh, I don't, I think it's still on El País, but it was that they'd reported a rumour that he was going to get rid of Gilmore's guitar solos oh. when he re-recorded Dark Side of the Moon, and he immediately said, "No, I'm not. I love those guitar solos." So we. We're very happy to get rid of that and apologise straight away. I don't. I think it's still knocking around. They're being reproduced by other people. But I think also, he, he, I think also, he perhaps uh, it was. I think an even-handed um, piece, but it was just spelling out what's happened in the band. You know, between he his kind of the ideological, shall we say, schism he's had, particularly with Gilmore over Ukraine, and uh, so he wasn't. You know, he wasn't happy about it. He is, as you know, a man of strong opinions. Yes, I'm all for strong opinions. Yeah. Um, where are we? So, uh, you're a keen fell walker. I, uh, I am care? a keen fell walker. I, I'm, I'm, I'm no life vice president of Ramblers. I was president, but I've been it for five years and I decided to, um, uh, uh well, we decided mutually, time to give someone else a go. Um, and I am, I think I got into it when I started to, um, when I was an NM, really at the NME. Because, right. like, Steve Lamax at the enemy, he would spend his two weeks' holidays in the back of a van with the Wonder Stuff. And, I, you know, like, <laughs> he, looked, he, he was in that world. And I thought, you know what, Steve, as much as I love our, my job, I have 50 weeks a year of being in the backs of vans with indie bands and uh, airports and all that, all that exciting stuff. But I thought, I don't want to do that on my two weeks off. I'd like to get some fresh air and go up a hill. And I didn't really know then that I fell in love with the Lake District. I had a moment of epiphany in the Lake District. So I thought, wow, this is what I want to do on my days off. And yeah, I'm a keen, I'm a keen fellow worker. Like I say, I'm off to Scarborough to do an event this weekend. I always think if I'm doing events, got if things on, I always think, um, oh, can I can I get a walk in near there? You know what I mean? We're Just, I mean, we need that stuff, don't we? The... I just think it's it's literally, it literally clears your head, you know. Yeah. And also in working wise, I don't know if you feel this, but if I've got if I'm writing and if I've got a problem with a piece, if I can't think of a way to start it or I can't think of a way to finish it, take you for a walk around the block. When I'm when I'm here now in my house, I'm looking out over a park and some woodland here. And I quite often will just be tapping away here and go, 
I'm going to take it for a walk around the block. And it's funny how it's like tumblers on a safe. Just the physical act of walking <laughs> seems to make it, seems to make them shift and move, you know. And you can and it sort of unlocks things. Yeah. We were yeah. uh, during lockdown when the when the government was saying you must stay in your home and uh, all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Bollocks to that. So I was working. I was walking like between five and ten miles every day in central London, and I turned wow. it. I turned it into a. Uh, a photographic project of photographing all the most amazing scenes with no people or cars in central. Yeah. I think I'll probably put a book out in the end of that. It was really good. Well, but you should, you absolutely should. Weirdly, we were told very soon when lockdown started, weirdly ourselves, as in me and Mark Radcliffe and um, Lauren Laverne, the breakfast show presenters basically on six music through the week, weekday and weekend. We were asked by the network, they said, will you stay on doing your show live in studios through lockdown? Uh, and they, they said, because, and it's very flattering, really. It tends to be, at the time, we joked about it, key worker status. Because we used to, me and Mark used to joke about the fact that we're just putting records on and talking rubbish and eating crisps on the radio. And we've got key worker status, like a policeman or a nurse or whatever. But I sort of, I sort of get what they mean, though, in hindsight, because so many people have, have written to me and told me, and they said, like, if if suddenly the things that were part of the bedrock of ordinary life had disappeared, did, absolutely. But if suddenly the, the little things like that, that they structured their day around went as well, it was, you know, if you want to take a wartime analogy, bad for morale, you know what I mean? And so our bosses said, we do think it's important that people have that sense of security and stability that they turn on in the morning. And so I was really, um, I was really You're a therapist, and So man. I did therapy. Well, yeah. So and so I was quite often travelling because I live in the Midlands in the Lake District, but I spend my weekends in Salford for the show. So often on Friday afternoon, I'd be or a Friday, I'd be travelling from the Midlands to to Manchester on a, a train that'd be completely deserted, just me on it. How weird! It's a weird sensation. Walking through Birmingham city centre, no one there. Walking through New Street Station, no one there. It was like a post-apocalyptic thing. Walking to Media City in Salford, no one there. And a hilarious thing I remember happened. Well, I think it's hilarious. I was walking across the what's called Grand Central now in Birmingham, the big complex where New Street Station is. It was completely deserted on Friday afternoon, and there were two policemen in the middle of the piazza, obviously looking out for people enforcing the rules. And... Um, and I thought, oh, and they were looking at me a bit like, where's he going? So I, I had my BBC pass. <laughs> so I showed them my BBC pass sort of across a few a distance as if to say, I'm an official on legit business. <laughs> and they saluted. <laughs> a pair of them saluted. It was God brilliant. It was, like BBC. it was like something from the Second World War. Off you go, sir, to do your job talking bollocks about pop music. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, I love that. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, Freak Zone. Tell us about it. I well, love that show. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. It's it's a real labour of love, the Freak Zone. It takes me longer than anything else I do apart from the writing. I've just actually, before spent this morning putting together a next week's show, um, I think, if I'm right, I'm thinking next week's Freak Zone. Uh, looks at whiteboard for the date next week's free zone, which we've recorded next Sunday night. There's an up and coming new pop act you'll be interested in in the featured album called the British Electric Foundation. Oh, I love them, they're just great, really. They're great. Well, one of their early hits has just been reissued, 
by a Cold Spring record label. And no, it, it's um, we'll come back to that because I want to talk to you properly about it. It's my, it's, it takes me longer to do than anything I do except writing the books because I build it all myself. I put all the music together myself, which is a, a joy and a real labour of love. But, you know, I've got here's my here's my current inbox of, you know, CDs that I'm listening to. Wow. Music, and I scour the internet and I try and balance them so there's a bit of everything. So I try and balance. So, like, here's a bit of free jazz. Here's a bit of electronic. Here's a bit of modern classical. Here's a bit of stoner rock. Here's a bit of psych. Here's a bit of Turkish psych. So I try and structure it and... And it's got a small but absolutely devoted audience. The people oh, who love it, the people who love it really... It's not, that's not, it's not that, it isn't that... It's a couple of hundred thousand, which for that kind of music, and that's not talking about the people who listen again, I don't think. So there are there is a, there is a, a listenership for it. And what's great about them is they're really broad-minded. They don't expect to like, to like everything I play. They they regard it as a voyage of discovery. You know if you I mean? don't like it, if you don't so, like it, there's another bus along in a minute. If you don't want to catch that one. Exactly. <laughs> There'll be something along in a minute you will like. And also, even if you don't like it, I like to think that you'll go, well, that was interesting. It wasn't for me. I didn't think it worked, but I was in and I'm not hearing it anywhere else. You're not gonna hear, you know. Italian prog and free jazz on Ken Bruce on Greatest Hits. You know what I mean? So it, it, it's, it's the, and the people who love it really love it. I got my be favourite bit of fan mail ever came from, I think it was a young woman who said, you played some, you played a track last week on the Free Zone that I think was almost unlistenable. Keep up the good work. <laughs> <laughs> And I do, I do try and play. I you know I don't play. It'd be easy to fill it full of unlistenable stuff for the sake of it, and I don't do that. And I do think when I get sent some quite extreme stuff, I get sent like fifty-minute modern classical pieces, and I'm like, do you know what? I love this, but it's not going to work on the radio. It's just not going to work on the radio. So, so I'm always trying to think. It's got to be a fun experience for the listener, even if it's a challenging one to a degree. But yeah, I love doing it, and people love it. And it's in a funny way; it's very Rethian. It's very BBC, you know. Oh, totally. It, it might not, it might not seem it, but that's what the BBC programs like that are what the BBC exists to do because no one else is going to do it. Well, it need, we need you know? the equivalent of that or the function of it on on the TV. I think Maybe. we are struggling. Uh, well, where can you? Apart yeah. George Holland. Yeah, it's become a bit of a. Embedded in, uh, yeah, fucking, you know, whatever. It's not. I, I think it's a bit old fashioned. Uh, I know I you mean. The guy who runs the program. I know Mark Cooper. Mark Cooper, yeah, virgin, yeah. Um, I think it needs re a, re a refresh. All that stuff, yeah, personally. But I just want to tell you a story about. Um, there was a when we, uh, the Human League, first went to France. We were never very big in France, but uh, when we were over there. We were listening to the radio, and um, we found this station. It's called Radio Nova. Okay. And all it was, I mean, now with 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 the internet, you know, you wouldn't think it was so unusual. But back then, it was just AM. I think it wasn't even FM. It was literally a radio station that played every genre in no in, in no particular order. Mm. But it was all you know, good music. Obviously, all he had was a was a uh, a time check at the, on the hour and half hour. No DJs, nothing, and mm. it, so you'd have like a Beethoven movement followed by some reggae, followed by some you know uh, avant garde yeah jazz. Followed. I just 
And I was riveted with it. Yeah. And I was so pissed off when I got back to the UK because you couldn't pick it up. Couldn't pick it up. It's it's a funny thing. In, in, in There's always this idea in, in some people saying radio, some people very much stick this idea in radio, and it's how commercial radio operates. And it's like, you know, you've got to give people, you've got to give, for instance, some people, some people in commercial radio have said to me, ah, you see, you can do that, what you do, like you and Mark on a, you can play what you want and play some, you can play some old funk record or you can play a great old disco record and all Northern Tunes or, or you on the Freak Zone, you can play some magma or some tangerine dream. We, because you're from the, you're in the BBC, we can't do that. And I always say, yeah, you can, you just don't. Exactly. You could take the chance and do it, but you don't. Commercial radio didn't always used to be like this. Mark, my oppo, you know, I never know, it's not the right expression, my partner in um, crime at the weekend, Mark, Mark started at Piccadilly Radio. And he had an art programme on Piccadilly Radio. You know, he had, like, Thursday night, he reviewed films and had an art show. Commercial radio used to do very different things. Oh, it's just become fixated now on playing the same four Dua Lipa records every hour, you know. <laughs> I haven't been against Dua Lipa. I like Dua Lipa, but I wouldn't want to hear a record four times an hour. No, no, exactly. Um, Wigan. What yeah. the hell's going on there? Oh, they're being bought, aren't they? I heard this. Oh, Wigan Athletic, the Latics. Yes. Yeah. Well, I follow uh, the great Lisa Nandy, our local MP, closely on Twitter, um, and she's put like she's she's as we speak in talks. Well, she not she's not personally in talks. She's she's sort of over. She's involved in monitoring what's happening with the talks between Wigan. And... Just a weird old thing. It's been a it's been a crazy roller coaster, Martin. I what used to watch Wigan in the Northern Premier League. Uh, back when I was about eight or nine years of age. And um, I can even remember the names of the players who played for us uh, back then. Uh, we used to play at Springfield Park and our big glam... We were always one of the best non-league teams. Mm. and our, But our big glamour clashes were against Stafford Rangers, Alteringham, Ghoul. <laughs> and I always... And so... And then when I was away at college, we... When Southport got... Back in the days when there was... Remember back in the days when you used to apply for re-election to the football league? Do you remember oh, that? God, yeah, I do. Yeah, you did. Wasn't automatic promotion and relegation. The bottom team in the fourth division applied for re-election, and basically, if the or the chairman liked you, didn't like you, they kicked you out. And year after year, Wigan would apply to join and never get let in. Anyway, a bit of a niche story. We got in. I think it's seventy-eight when Southport, poor old Southport, got kicked out, and kind of pibbled around, and then. Ended up in the Premier League, and, and of course, the most glorious day of our career, 2013, when we beat, when we beat the petrochemically funded giants of Manchester City in the um, in the um, in the FA Cup, and I was there, and it was a fantastic day. And it's funny if you were, if you were, we we got relegated that year, and if you were, if you're under thirty, I'd say. Wigan fans under 30 were like, we mu I don't care if we win the FA Cup, we mustn't get relegated. People over 30 were completely opposite, like yeah. me. They would say, you, you, your name's on the FA Cup forever if you win the FA Cup. You're on that you're on that trophy forever. We can always come back from being relegated, but winning the FA Cup is an extraordinary thing, yeah. So. yeah well, we, uh, but Wigan Athletic were the, were the trendy kind of underdogs to follow, in much the same way as Leicester were when they won the... Totally. You're a Wednesday. Are you Wednesday? You're a Wednesday. Oh, Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah, we we swap places with you. Thank God. Yeah. Get out of the that the seventh circle of hell. Yeah. It's League One. Uh, we got ninety six points and get automatic promotion. You know. Anyway, we went up last minute. Fantastic. Because I don't think you 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 
you want to do apologies with my old mate Paul Heaton, which I've not, I don't think I've listened to that one. How did you get on? Because he's a Blades fan, isn't he? He's just such a lovely guy. I can't he's a top man, him. isn't he? I can't find it within me, myself, to um, criticise him. He's just a lovely guy. And, he's a fabulous uh, he's guy. Sheffield and... Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I, 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 he asked me what I do is, whatever you call it, induction into... He just got inducted into the Ivers. He got the Ivers... Songwriting. Bad, it? Oh. it was one. He got one of those, you know, lifetime achievement type things. Yeah, lifetime achievement to music. Yeah, I bet you. Well, he got one last year, and he asked me, "Would I induct him into it or whatever? Do his citation on the stage? You know what I mean?" Oh, nice. So I said, "So I did his citation, and I said, <laughs> you 'You've got to remember that all Paul's songs down the years have tried to serve a dual function. Firstly." They have tried to make people's feet tap and hearts sing and to, you know, make their day a brighter and happier place. And secondly, they're intended to overthrow the ruling class and institute a workers' dictatorship <laughs> of the proletariat. And I said, as yet, he has only been successful in the former of these ambitions. <laughs> You're funny. Yeah, that was good. Um, well, we're getting close to the end here. You'd be glad okay. to hear. Um, but firstly, I, I saw this on Wikipedia. I know it's probably a load of bollocks, but I Go think it's um, you instigated two urban legends. Bob Holness <laughs> played <laughs> on Baker Street. Yes. And Bowie invented Connect Four, both of which made me laugh very much. Okay. When I was at the NME, I did try and make it funnier because when I came to the NME in the Late 1980s, it was a great, you know, it's a good paper. I liked it. It was terribly intellectual. It was terribly serious. It, it, you know, it had a lot of stuff in there with Taiwanese film directors and stuff. And and I, and it was hemorrhaging list, readers. It was losing listeners hand over fist. So in came a load of us, myself, Marianne Hobbs, Steve LeMack, Andrew Collins, who were a bit more ordinary kids from the, from the sticks almost. We weren't London trendies. We were ordinary kids from Northampton, Sheffield, Blackpool, you know, in my case, Wigan. And we put a little bit more life into it, I think. And um, and also, it coincidentally, Manchester began to happen, so we got behind that. So we kind of turned the paper around, really, in a fun way, I think. And one of the things I did was this part of the paper called Thrills, which had been full of Taiwanese film directors' profiles. I started to put jokey items in a la Private Eye, you know, right. like those spoof right. items in Private Eye, like a sort of pop music Private Eye. Yeah. And one day the editor called me in, Alan Lewis, great man, no longer with us. Great Alan Lewis called me in and said, um, I see you're putting these uh, these kind of funny things in. And I said, Young <laughs> McConey. And I said, Yeah, okay, I don't need to. I can stop if you like. And he said, No, no, no. He said, I love it. He said, D -d Make it all like that. Make it all like that. If you can fill a page with that sort of stuff every week. So I did fun, I did like a private eye style funny page in the enemy every week. And one of the things I did in it, was thrills, believe it or not. And it was a spoof of those, you know, oh, the Great right. Wall of China is the only man-made object you can see from the moon. Did you know? It was a spoof of that. Three or four pop facts in every week that were not true. Yeah. And I came up with loads of them. Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys is a fully qualified rugby league referee. Um, <laughs> Andy Bell of Erasure is worshipped as a god on certain Greek islands. Um, these kind of things. But two, one in particular that I invented, Bob Holness played the saxophone solo on Baker Street. And to a lesser degree, David Bowie invented yeah. Connect Four. See, the, Bob Hol the Bob Holness thing is so ludicrous that he it is. 
could be true. It could be true. And that's, and it's so interesting. And I, I did a documentary once with John Ronson, the great John Ronson, about urban myths. Because yeah. as he says in it, most urban myths are lost in the mists of time. But we said, I said, I can probably accurately date that urban myth to the second. It would be a Wednesday afternoon in 1980 when I invented it in the offices of the enemy. And that is the one. I've seen the Bowie one getting reproduced, but the, the Bob Holness, I have had people come up to me in pubs, not come up to me in pubs, I've been chatting to people and they said, do you know who played the saxophone solo on Baker Street? You'll never guess. Bob Holness <laughs> said, no, he didn't, because I made that up. But the, these are the two, the two ramifications of it that I think are amazing. They played Baker Street at Bob Holness's funeral. And I didn't know I didn't know whether to be embarrassed of that or delighted, but his family think it's so funny. His family thought it was so funny. They played Baker Street at Bob Holness's funeral in tribute to the myth. And also, the guy who does play the, the saxophone solo, Raphael Ravenscroft. Raph Ravenscroft, great session sax player. I, I think it's fair to say I'm not his favourite person. <laughs> certainly not his Christmas... I'm certainly not on his Christmas card list because he, he doesn't get credit for that great solo in a lot of places because he says he had people say to him, Bob Holmes played that solo. He said, I played it. Because <laughs> that solo is so instrumental, and no pun intended, to the success of the record. Oh, no, it's, it wouldn't exist without that solo. Well, it's I, like I was thinking, yeah, like the guitar solo on Come Up and See Me Make Me Smile. You know, like the guitar solo on Come Up and See Me Make exactly. Me Smile. I always think that wouldn't have been a hit without that solo, you know. So, um, Quick story, my wife used to work in advertising and she decided to start to do an experiment and start an urban myth, a complete lie. Mm -hmm. And she said she started this myth and see how, how far it would proliferate and stuff. And um uh to try and impress her bosses, I think. And she started this myth that um Clint Eastwood's dad was Stan Laurel. I've heard that. Yeah, she started that. <laughs> I've heard that, and do you know why that's? Do you know why that? Congratulations! Well, well done. Do you know why that's believable? What really makes that believable? If you look at their eyes, yeah. they've got very similar-looking eyes. <laughs> wow! Yeah, she used to work. I mean, she Clint Eastwood campaigns and everything, you know. So anyway, wow. Yeah, I've never let anybody know that. There you go. Um, right, wow. we're on to the smash it type questions now. Which I'm okay. Sure you've been informed about before, but anyway, um, what's your favourite film? Gregory's Girl. I love oh. Gregory's Girl. It's my go-to It's my go -to comfort film. I could watch it every day. There's just something about it. It's so... I love that it's set... I love that it's set, set on a council estate in a new town, very much the kind of background I came from. But it isn't about... It's not about it in the sense that... No, no offence to Radio 4... But if, if you see that there's a Radio 4 drama set on a council estate in a new town, you know yeah. it's going to be gritty about hardship. Yeah. And Chris Girl just happens to be set there. It's a long, it's a teenage love story that just happens to be set on a an East Kilbride. Um, uh, sorry, Cumbernauld. It's, it's East Kilbride. It's, no, Cumbernauld. Cumbernauld. And I just love it. It's I think it's funny. I think it's beautifully acted. I think it's romantic. Yeah, I, I, it's, I, it's a film I could never tire of watching, yeah. Have you told Claire about that? Have you interviewed Claire? I, I think I think she probably knows. I think she probably knows. <laughs> I, I went to do it's free because I've written quite often about my love for Gregory's Girl. I, I once interviewed John Gordon Sinclair on Radio Two about some theatre piece he was in, and he had to say, after about fifteen minutes he had to say, "And now, Stuart, if we could talk about talk about my play in the West End, <laughs> not about Gregory's Girl." Um, 
but also I went now I've forgotten this gentleman's name and this is so rude of me but you know if you've seen Gregory's Girl you'll know there's the two loser kids who can't get off with the girls one of whom you know the one he says do you know when you sneeze it comes out your nose at 100 miles an hour and all that and they can't get the girls they're the ones who were there at the beginning with Gregory trying to look through the window at the nurse getting changed I did a gig at the toll booth in Stirling a few years back and I noticed that people around me were saying, oh, well, you must meet our production manager our, who does all our in-house production and lighting and sound. You must meet him before the gig. And I was like, all right, all right, yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's fine. And I realised when I met, when because they'd read my stuff about Gregory's girl, and I realised when he came into the dressing room, and I, I'm so angry now with myself, I can't remember this gentleman's name, it's him. He wow. is now the production. And he walked in the room and, and he said, hello. And I went like, oh, my God. Oh my God! You know, and then recited the script. Recited the script, and it was a bit like my visceral reaction last week when I opened my post bag at Six Music and saw "Music of Quality and Distinction" by the British ah. Electric Foundation. I gave out an involuntary. My producer will swear to this. My producer, I gave out an involuntary. Wow! When I opened it, because I love that. I think I've got a cassette somewhere. Of yeah, that. it was is only that, on cassette originally. So. Is that worth a lot of money now? Oh, tens. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. And I think I'm not blowing smoke up you, but I loved it. I think it's a listening to it again last few weeks. It's, it's so record. ahead of its time. It's yeah. so ahead of its time and how electronic music was going to go. Yeah. Really interesting. Glitch techno and all that. You can hear all that in there. And yeah, anyway. Yeah, well I'm, I'm glad to say this is a good piece of trivia for you. I know you're fond of trivia. Yeah. But, um, I interviewed Moby for the podcast and he's. Yeah. Decline of the West was one of his favourite songs, a favourite piece of music of all time. Off that album, Decline, I, it's, it's it's my favourite track on that album. It's one of my favourites. Decline of the West, I think. And Moby for Christ. You know. I know. We certainly play that track next week. We're playing three track, three or four tracks from it next week on the Freak Zone. Wow, fantastic! Um, favourite TV show. I love quizzes. I absolutely love quizzes. So I'm a sucker for Only Connect with the lovely Vicky Corrin and University's Challenge. I'm a sucker for quizzes because I'm a general knowledge kind of quiz nerd. Recently, recently I've really enjoyed The Gold. I love anything that Neil Forsyth writes. He's a great Scottish writer. Well, he's not a great Scottish writer. He's a great writer who happens to come from Dundee. But he, he, I've, he I loved The Gold and I loved... Um, what else? The Guilt, which has just finished recently with the great Mark Bonner. I love anything he writes, but my all-time, a bit like Gregory's Girl, my all-time comfort TV viewing that I can watch again and again is Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads. No. <laughs> Which, not the, not the 60s original Likely Lads, the brilliant 70s reboot, Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads. I still think it's unsurpassed as a British sitcom. Those characters, it's like all British, great British comedies, it's about class, it's about aspiration, it's about getting older, and it's just... It's, it's like Gregory's Girl. I pepper my conversation with, with quotes from it. Like, I pepper my conversation with quotes from Gregory's Girl. If an unpleasant person leaves the room, if, a, if, a, if, a, if, a, if there's been a wanker in the room with you and he leaves, I always say, Arriva Dirty Gordon, hurry back. I just pepper my conversation <laughs> with references to Likely Lads and Gregory's Girl, which is kind of tragic, but, you know. <laughs> it was, it, I mean, the, the, whatever happens to the Likely Lads was brilliantly written, I have to say. Um, brilliantly written. And brilliantly and written as well. Yeah, the sad, 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 melancholy thing about it is due to a misunderstanding, I think, in an interview, they had a falling out. Bolam and Buse had a falling out. And for years, I, I think James Bolam wasn't very uh, enamoured of the likely lads because he'd had this little bit of a falling out with Rodney Buse and they didn't speak. 
And I wanted, you know, you want to say to him, James, it's a masterpiece. You've never done anything better. It's a masterpiece, you know. Now, one of these questions is, um, what have you got any unfulfilled ambitions? But I'm thinking you should host the quiz show. I'd love to do that. I'd love to. I've done it, I've hosted, do I've it, done it on radio. I've done it on radio. I'd love to host a TV quiz show. Let's hope a TV quiz producer is watching this night. It'd be great. Around pop music. You know, That'd be cool, man. There's no, every few years someone tries to do a pop music quiz and they should try again because there's there's a few things on at the moment on Saturday night on the B, but they're not they don't well they don't float my boat, but then again, maybe oh. I'm not the right demographic. But yeah, we should bring back we should bring back Mike Reed's pop quiz. Oh. <laughs> Did let's you ever do? Did you ever, let's not do Mike Reed, though. Eh? No, no, no. Did you ever do? Did you ever do pop quiz? Yeah, I did actually. Um, I bet you must. Have I done. did. Um, was that the one? Oh yeah, I did it in '83, and I was on the same panel as uh, John Taylor, who looked after me. Thank God, I was terrified. He's and a lovely I, man, John Taylor, isn't he? I think I got about three out of ten questions. <laughs> I was, Fucking terrible. They wanted me on Celebrity Mastermind recently, and I said, under no circumstances. Really? All, yeah, all I've got left is my reputation and my legacy, <laughs> and I could destroy that in no time flat. I've got to tell you then, Martin. Have you been on Master- it? Been on it. 33 points, still a record. You're joking. Specialist subject, 20th century British poetry. And I went on, when I got there... I said to the other contestants, what are you doing as your specialist subject? And one said, I'm doing Nirvana, the band Nirvana. All right, okay, two albums. Then the singer kills himself. Uh, what are you doing? Empire Strikes Back, the movie. I thought, what's that? One film, two hours, 20 minutes. <laughs> and I thought, I'm doing 20th century British poetry. I've made a boob here. And then I said to this bloke, what are you doing? And he said, I'm doing the, the Academy Awards. And I thought, well, at least that's a decently sized subject. And he said, I didn't want to do it. He said, I wanted to do the Beatles, but someone else has done the Beatles. So I had to do the Academy Awards. And I jokingly said, yeah, of course you had to do the Academy Awards because there's only those two subjects in the world, isn't there? And and I misread the room a bit and he was quite tetchy with me. No. Anyway, I won 33 points. Oh, well done. I'm very impressed with that. Yes, you should um, do it. You should do it. It's fun. But I know what you mean. It's nerve wracking. Yeah. Oh, and they want me to do bloody pointless as well, which I don't like. Well, no, you've got to tell me, though, if you did do it, if you were forced to do it, if I forced you, what would you do as your specialist subject? Very good question. I'd probably do uh, Sheffield Wednesday. I'd probably know everything there is to know about Sheffield Wednesday. Good one. Yeah, good I've one. Got, my, my dad gave me a book when I was young, which was known as the Wednesdayites Bible, called The Romance of the Wednesday by by a, an ex-player called Starling, who's very famous. And this is like, there's only about, 50 of these left in the world, you know. It's like, wow. the, it's like the Quran or something, you know. <laughs> and I read that book cover to cover, and, yeah, obviously, I'm sick. Um, so um, who's your favourite humorist? Because I noticed that every your entire career, the thread that runs through the whole thing is your sense of humour, really. Well, it's interesting you say that, and I'm glad you say that, because I did an interview recently for the British Comedy Guide about my new book, The Full English, available in all good bookstops now, bookshops <laughs> now. And I did do, I did an interview, and they, and I said, why do you want to do me as an interview? For, and I, they said, because all your career has been, if not comedic, maybe, comedy adjacent, which I think yeah. is a good phrase. Like yeah. And I know what he means. I've always tried to be, like when I wrote about pop music for the enemy, I tried to be funny. When I when I in the radio, I try to be funny. Even on the freak zone, I try and put a bit of levity into it because yeah. it could be a very dry show, you know. Yeah. 
So I do try and make it warm. It'd be very easy to make that show very ponderous and beard stroking. I try yeah. and make it quite witty. I think my hero from that point of view then, well, I love the American, the now sadly late American comedian Norm MacDonald, just as someone yeah. who makes me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. But my favourite humorist is probably Clive James. Because I when I want when I started to write about music for the NME, I wanted to write about music the same way Clive James wrote about telly when he did those brilliant telly reviews in the 70s yeah. and 80s, which is to be informed and to know what you're talking about, but to be funny. And I just think he's – and he, he's, he's prose style. He's oh, so, he's beautifully so written. So good. I've, re I've read every – a collection of essays, all this stuff. I, I think Clive James. Well, I was I was lucky enough to work with him towards the latter stages of my life, he, he, which is a, a great. I can't believe I wrote for Clive James for his television program. But what I do now, Martin, if I'm going to write a piece, or particularly if I'm writing a book, I will sometimes pick up pick a Clive James, one of those TV criticism books, down from the shelf, and look at it to sort of get me going, get my game, get my game up. And I always think of it. I say to people, I think of it as like knocking up with Federer if you're on a tennis court. <laughs> I think of it as like like knocking a few balls across a court with Federer to get your game up. You know what I mean? You think, right, it's got to be that good now, you know. Yeah, I, I agree completely. But I just reminded me of something actually. When I was um young, I we didn't have any books in our house. I mean, literally, yeah. them. So, like, I used to live in the library, and as soon as I could yeah. get to the main library, I've always been fascinated with comedy and humour. But there's mm. really dry books in there, and I got this book out called the uh, The Anatomy of Humour by James Thurber. Okay, uh, and he's you know, a, and he's a bit dry for a humorist. I thought, this isn't yeah. this isn't like. Uh, cannon and bull at all you know <laughs> um but he did i've had a lifelong interest in in that kind of the pe the the people uh and commentators like yourself who oscillate between depth and and he and the leavening influence of humor yeah and uh, I've, I've, that's why we're talking as we are now but you know it's I, I i always try and make it if not kind of you know Bish bash zinger gags, but just always to have a certain like yeah. that you say a kind of lightness of touch and a levity about things. Yeah, I think so. Okay, um, epiphany in your life. Um, probably like a lot. The Lake District. That moment I talked about. Top of Luffrig Fell. Top of Luffrig Fell. I bought one of those Wainwright books. I. Bought a very cheap waterproof and things like that. And I I was not the kind of kid who went fell walking. My mum and dad didn't take me fell walking. I was a Butlins kid. And I'd always thought of it as being a rather, you know, like Vic and Bob's fell walkers. I'm going up half and Slough and Barthendale at the weekend with woolly hats and all that. And I thought, this isn't for me. I'm, a, I'm essentially a teenage punk rocker from a council estate. I'm not built for this. And then on a beautiful spring day, looking out over the Lake District and realising everybody down there in their cars can't experience this world. You've got to get out and up to experience yeah. this other world. So that was a revelation. That was a moment of epiphany. And I know it's a bit it's a bit tired more to say, but pop pop music. I mean, my mum took me to see the Beatles when I was three. Wow. And I don't really remember it, but it's somewhere in my it's gone into DNA. And and like a lot of people, punk rock. I mean, not so much in the. I, I listen to punk rock anymore. I don't. I don't listen to Eater or anybody like that. But just that feeling suddenly of a, a kind of revolution. Mm. And I suppose you must have thought of because for me, I always thought I always used to say that punk rock didn't just bring along a lot of 
old punk rock records, which frankly a lot of them aren't very good. But I always thought punk rock kicked down the doors and made the way for you and Kate Bush. And anybody who was a little bit out of the ordinary, anybody who wasn't making boring, long-heard 70s country rock. You know, so so you, Kate Bush, anybody interesting, I thought, after the buzzcocks, people yeah. came along, wire. It, it, it's that, that, not so much that I love punk rock as the music, but how it turned British pop culture on its head. Yes. I'm also, one of my uh, pet, uh, loves is bands that transcended that punk rock revolution, yes. like uh, you know the Friends of ours, but Devo. Yes. Uh, people like uh, Doctor Madness, for instance. Yes. And who was you know, Rich is still a, a good friend of mine. Um, even people like early Ultravox. Yeah. Know? And and some of them kind of were diminished by the revolution. And other ones just drove straight through it like it was. That's right. And and also people like, say, Peter Gabriel and Brian Eno, who yeah. was smart enough to say, well, it, we don't want to make music like that, but we can see that it's a healthy thing to have happened. And we will, you know, even if it just meant cutting their hair a bit shorter, I don't know. But having said that, we should always, when people do bang, I do, I, it bores me an old bloke bang on about, oh, punk rock was the best music ever. It wasn't really. And you've also got to remember that the people who sold shitloads of records after punk rock, People like Genesis, you know what I mean? It That's didn't right. affect, but although, although Rick Waitman says, Rick Waitman says in two degrees, it was like going, if you were one of the old guards like me, it was like going into a factory on a Monday morning and them saying, Here's what were you saying? We can, here's your cards, you're finished. He said, it was almost like that. He said, you, We couldn't get arrested. We wasn't on the Monday morning, it was like, No, punk rock's happening now, mate. We don't want you. And I yeah, bet to a lot of those old prog rockers, it did feel yeah, like that. Uh, and I loved, the I loved six, all the six, li the six lives were burning the eighth on ice. I mean, that needs yes. to fucking die. Well, right. the ice, the ice thing did. I still love that record. I love the fact that he said to, when he made that record, he went to A and M Records. <laughs> he thought he went to A and M Records, and they said to him, "So let me get this right. It's about these six. It's about these six broads from English history. <laughs> no one knows about about these six broads." It hasn't got any vocals on it. It hasn't got any drums on it. What do you what do you think we're nuts? And he said 11 million albums later or something like that. They were yeah, like, oh, yeah, it was a great yeah. idea all yeah, along. Yeah, yeah. We always knew it was a great idea. No, I love prog rock. I'm being a bit naughty. No, I know. I'm a, I'm a massive prog rock. Uh, Who's your, who are your favourites? Oh, Van der Graaff Generator. Great, great uh, choice. Uh, great I, choice. I'm King Crimson. And, you know. Great choice. I'm Gentle Giant Man myself. I love Gentle Giant. Oh, right. Interesting. They were the weirdest of the prog bands, I think. Coming back to your point about um, the people who adapted to that punk rock, yeah. Peter Hamill put out Peter a Hamill, album called Nadia's Big Chance, Brilliant. which was his response to punk rock. It's an amazing album. Yeah, well, it's almost it almost predates it, doesn't it? It's like seventy five Nadia's Big Chance, and I know that Johnny Rotten, as as he was then, did like that. My favorite tunes on Radio One soon after the Pistols had emerged. And he picks a record from the Deer's Big Chance on that. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I know. I, I mean, I became friends with him for a, well, a long time, not so much now, but yeah. Um, and he was a big fan of Van de Graaff. In fact, we 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 bonded over it, you know. And he came up to me and said, "Martin, Martin, I think Evan Seventeen are really cool. I really <laughs> like Let Me Go, you know, and all that." <laughs> oh, I have to slip in my John Lydon impersonation. Hey, um you know what? You can almost hear a bit of Leiden in, not, I mean, it, not, I was going to say you can almost hear a bit of Leiden in Pete Hamill. You can't because Pete Hamill's got that beautifully enunciated voice and Leiden's got that street sort of whine. But there's something, 
the, the, there's like the attack, isn't there? Yes. There's something of the same attack in both of their voices. When, uh, when, when um, Peter Hamill hits it hard, when he's really singing yeah. hard and almost screaming, that's yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you had not been an, uh, uh, well, you've got a, you've got a portfolio career, don't if you? If I'd not been an all-purpose media tart, yeah, is you, what you're yeah, struggling yeah. to say, oh. Martin. <laughs> well put. Le mot juste. Um, <laughs> no, le mot juste. Um, what, what do you think you might have had? Oh, I suppose a teacher, is it? Also? I'd have been a teacher, probably. I'd have been an academic, I think, or a teacher. I'd have been some kind of middling academic or uh, a teacher, I reckon. Yeah, that would have been what I've done. I was pretty, I was quite good at it and I quite liked it. So, um, ambition un unfulfilled. I mentioned it earlier, but. Do you have anything that you? Well, apart from ridiculous things like scoring a winning goal for Wigan Athletic, you know, that's not happening. Um, you know what? I don't think I have because I'm a bit wary of having ambitions because I've never, I didn't, I, I regard myself so stupidly lucky to have done, to have turned that thing that's probably the same with you. Being a kid, loving pop music, loving you know going in the library, and thinking. I'd love a job that involved all this, but thinking it probably won't happen. It probably won't happen. I'll probably end up in, working in a bank. There's nothing wrong with working in a bank, but you know what I mean? And not a nine to five office job. And like my mum and dad sort of probably despairing of me spending my whole life listening to records. Unfortunately, enough, before they died, they got to see that I'd made a pretty successful life out of it, which is lovely. And um, so, no, I'm just every, every bit, and I remind myself of it a lot too. Um, me and Mark were talking about this today on the radio. I've got little grandkids now, and I took one of them, took two, took a couple of them to Media City where I work at the weekends, and I took them into the studios on the on the radio studio, and they were putting their headphones on and opening the faders, yeah. and they were excited by the buildings and the lights and everything. And one of them, Noah, said to me, you're so lucky you get to come here every week and work here. You're so lucky. And when I, when I said that to Mark, and Mark said, well, we are, and we should remember that. Yeah, I always yeah. try and do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, final question: What's your favourite synthesizer? Oh, I quite well. I like those ones you used to use in the early Human League. The those was it Cogs you used to use those oh, waspy sounds. Got it here, oh, mate. Yeah, hold well, on. Where is it? That Whoa. one. Whoa, that's the one I played. Bean boiled on. Wow, is it? Wow. Yeah. And well, that that's the other one. That we did the rhythm for being boiled on. Yeah. Wow. Well, do you know what? I think that my I was such a such a fan of you uh, uh, early on. I mean, I'm not sure I was. I'm not sure I can claim to have been there right at the very start, but I do distinctly remember hearing you. You were doing an interview on one of those Saturday afternoon like rock programmes on Radio 1 with Richard Skinner or something. I think Reproduction must have just been about to come out. I don't think I'd... Oh, no, but no, I'd have the original Fast Product singles before then, wouldn't I? That's before then, yeah. Being so, Boiled, probably, yeah. Being Boiled, being boiled Circus of Death, obviously, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then re-recorded re for Travelogue, yeah. obviously. And... um and I rem and those I rem I, they made so my first year at college never off the deck of my turntable. Oh. I loved. I still I played it the other day on a canal walk on the Rochdale Canal. It still sounds great. It, it, it still it, sounds like nothing. It still sounds like nothing on earth. It's very interesting because the guy who that was our first experience of a big studio, and the guy who co-produced it with us and engineered it. The reason we wanted him to do it because he worked on low for Bowie. Okay. Colin Thurston. Yeah. But then when we got to the studio, 
we thought we were just going to take our original recordings we did in our studio in Sheffield and tart them up a bit. And he made yeah. us record everything. But he didn't fully understand electronics. So it came out sounding very super clean. Yeah. Looking back now is a bit weird. It sounds otherworldly and a bit like a kind of synth chamber orchestra almost. Well, that's probably what I like about it. Yeah. Uh, what I like about Travelog is because we that was more authentically like we were live, which is more like electro punk, you know, a bit more edgy. Yeah. Well, I love Travelog too. In fact, my I absolutely love it. Quite often play it on shows, even though it's an album track. I still sneak in WXJL tonight. Yeah. Just one of the greatest ways to end an album ever. I love it. You know, do you it. know what uh, in, inspired that was Harry Chapin, W O L D. Well, you're, there's a little nod to it in it, isn't there? The, yeah. You go, duh, 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 duh. I, know, I, I love that. that little nod. Yeah, Harry Chapin's great. What an absolute joy this is. Oh no, thank you, Martin. Thank you for thank indulging you. me with all this time. It's been a wide ranging chat. Well, you know, I mean, when when do people like us get a chance to, you know. Chat as though we're in a pub or something for an hour. Exactly, exactly. We all get like five minutes if we're lucky. Enough. Exactly. No, it's been brilliant. I've really loved it. Oh, good man. Well, I'm going to put this out soon, and I can't Great. wait. I hope the book does well, which it will. Let me know when you're putting it out. You won't want to put this, and let me know when you're putting it, out and I'll do some tweeting. Absolutely, man. Thanks. All right. I'll see you soon. Cheers, mate. Love Bye, man. Cheers. McConey, what an interesting guy. And, you know, it's a bit like me. He could probably talk from now till doomsday. But he does it with a lot more wide-ranging knowledge than me. As I mentioned in the talk, I really like Freak Zone, I think. The British radio, and radio in general, worldwide, needs more of a kind of eclectic attitude. And because that's how you keep things fresh. It's that kind of cross-fertilisation and hybridisation of different influences. Not just copying whatever the last successful record was, you know. How is everyone keeping? Anybody wants to email me electronicallymartin at gmail.com or support me on Patreon, patreon.com stroke electronicallyhours. Really appreciate your help. Another amazing guest next week and look forward to having your company. Bye! Now, oh, these are all, there are a lot of Patreon ones nice. here. This it's like is a Christmas from, thing. Right? Yeah, Herben Shimansky. Herbert. Herbert Shimansky. Excuse me. Um, Martin, thanks for all the joy and entertainment listening to your podcasts. All the best to you and your beloved best, Herbert. Thanks, Herbert. Thanks. And this is another Patreon one from Sean O'Keefe, wishing you and all the team a very happy Christmas and every best wish for the coming year. Thanks, Sean. This is from Miles Matisse. Martin, first off, happy holidays to you. You're electronically yours, team, and your family. Second, my question is, have you and Glenn ever considered or thought of writing and recording a brand new Full Heaven 17 album with different special guests on each song? And if you ever would make such an album, what musicians, artists, or singers would you like to include? The first, uh, the first artists that come to my mind would be LaRue, Vince Clark, Martin Fry, Richard Barbieri, Claudia Brooken and Suzanne Freytag, Nick Beggs, Marcella Detroit, Billy Curry, Dave Ball, 
Sister Bliss, Paul Humphrey, Sananda Maitreya, Neil Arthur, John Fox, Thomas Dolby, Animatronic. I chose these because of their talent as well as your already established relationship with them through the podcast. Steve Lipson could produce the entire <laughs> album. <laughs> what about, you know, I've got, uh, I, I'm a producer you know, as well. I think Steve's a good choice. No, uh, no, no, Martin would do it and me. This would be different than a BEF album. It would be a Heaven 17 album with special guests featuring on each song. It's quite a cool idea, actually. Singers like Anna, John, Marcella, LaRue, Martin, Claudia, Suzanne and Sananda would actually duet with Glenn on their respective track. Musicians featured would, of course, play on their Heaven 17 track. It would be a tremendous way to garner attention and sales worldwide and a fabulous addition to Heaven 17's discography and legacy. Much love, Miles Matisse. What do you think, Martin? Um, I like the idea. I mean, uh, what strikes me is what an enormous amount of work we're going to doing that. I know um, the last BEF album I did was hard enough just getting guest singers on uh, and and myself making the tracks um to do that with Glenn and with all the instrumentalists and all the singers and getting it all together um could only really work if um I got a, a buy-in from a record company who were willing to finance it in the first place and, and that doesn't seem to me the way that uh, this business works at the moment. So, nice idea, but unlikely to happen. You could get a couple of features on it, though. What do you mean? You could just get one or two. I know, yeah, I know. But the, the point being, um, for us to record a new Hem 17 album to the quality that we'd like, let alone with a bunch of guest singers, costs time and money. Mm. And um, who's going to pay for it? Anyway, good question. Um, this is Michael Noth, another Patreon uh, patron. I just want to say thank you, Martin. I'd also like to wish you a Merry Christmas. All the best for 2023 to the EY family. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. All the best to you.